0: This week on Thinking Biblically, I'm going to share with you why I've come to trust the Bible. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Before we d- get into this week's topic, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe and share and like, review, and comment. You could send me your comments and or questions to comments at thinkingbiblically.org. A couple of weeks ago, I discussed uh, the topic of is the Bible true? We talked about what truth is and how truth is reality. Reality, truth from a biblical perspective, is the same thing, and how the, the Bible provides us with reality. It, it shares with us the world from God's perspective, and God, the designer, is the one who understands what the world really is, what it's for, and what we're for. But what does it mean to prove that the Bible is true. A lot of people, they want proof. How can I know that the Bible is reliable? How do I know that I can trust that the Bible really is what it says it is, that it's the Word of God, that it's accurate, and this sort of thing? Um, When we talk about proving whether the Bible is true, uh, we're not talking about putting it under some sort of microscope and doing some sort of scientific experiments on it to prove that it's true in, in that sense. The way we prove a, a document is true in this sense is is the same way that we might prove ourselves to someone. That in it's more similar to a relationship where when we get to know someone over time, we get to, we get to know that that person is basically true to their word. Um, you know, on one hand, we can't really trust anyone but God fully because human beings um are are imperfect and we're not always what we claim to be. Uh, but there's a sense in which we could discover whether someone or or something is, is reliable. Um if uh you know that I'm good with directions, for example, you could basically trust that when I give you directions the next time, you can rely on them. Now you should rely on them with an with your eyes open and, and be aware, uh, but it's similar to how I trust the GPS on my phone, and I, I love using Google Maps. This is not a this is not product placement. Um, I remember in, in some of the early days of both GPS and, and Google Maps that often had some interesting surprises, but it's gotten a lot better. Now, even then, when you use it, you know I fundamentally rely on it. I, it's proven to me that it's trustworthy, but I need to be I need to be careful. Now, in the case of the Bible, I've I've come to believe that it's absolutely trustworthy now how i understand it or how somebody else understands it how somebody else talks about it or even in translation and at some point i probably should share uh, the relationship of translation to the original but uh, one of the things about translation is this is the work of human beings doing their best to try to represent the original languages as best as possible and they may not get it absolutely right every time. But we've got tools at our disposal that could help us, even the English speaker, to connect with what the original languages say and and get to its most basic, what, what what it's seeking to communicate to us most basically. And I believe that if we would give the Bible a chance and allow it to speak to us on its own terms, that we will discover that it is reliable. Now, I didn't start this way. I actually started life as a baby, and I didn't understand much. But growing up, I wasn't uh, exposed that much to the Bible. It it would take some big ahas in my life uh, before I would get to the point where I could start Trusting what the Bible was saying to me. And it's something actually I've been grappling with ever, ever since. I'm going to get into some of that. I'm going to get into uh how I've coped with some of the, the things in the Bible that I've found disturbing, uncomfortable, and hard to believe. We'll get we'll get to that. But I want to share first from a personal perspective how I came to at least give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and started a journey that has been going on uh, for the past 46-ish years and some of you are are, are aware of my story and and how the bible was core to my coming to faith in god and in yeshua as the messiah and so growing up in a jewish household um, some jewish households might have more exposure to the bible than than we did but in my home there was next to nothing Um, when i was in grades one and two growing up in Montreal, they were still telling Bible stories in school. And, and so I remember hearing about Joseph and Noah's Ark. Um, I, the reason why I remember about Joseph, I don't remember the story from back then, but I can remember like yesterday that there was a, a one of the kids in the class, his name was Joseph, and he hated whenever this teacher would tell the Joseph story. I could hear him saying, don't tell that story. Everybody always points at me when you say Joseph. It's, that's why I remember that we that uh, I heard this the Joseph story, uh, but I don't remember much. Of course, there's somehow we pick up things like Noah's Ark. We did celebrate Passovers. So there was awareness of the story of of the Exodus. Um, I knew who King David was, uh, and some of these things came out of songs. Going to Jewish camps when I was I was young, and this sort of thing. But I really didn't know much about the Bible. Um, I remember seeing a, a small Uh, like a compact Bible on one of my brother's bookshelves. And um, remember, it wasn't in the greatest condition, and I didn't really know why he had it. I think maybe it was because of a course in high school or something. Not sure. I didn't read it. Um, One thing I did know, somehow, though I wasn't taught this explicitly, though um, I did really have an us-and-them kind of mentality when it came to the difference between Jewish people and and non-Jewish people, uh, that somehow I picked up that the New Testament was not for us, it was taboo. And maybe you've heard the story of of when I was in a motel in grade 10, um, and uh, I was traveling with my mom, and and she had gone out for something, and I opened the drawer, uh, the night table drawer, and there was a Gideon's Bible. And uh, I'd never read the Bible, I didn't I don't think I opened the Bible that I saw on my brother's uh, bookshelf. I just was curious. So I wanted to see what was in it. But I knew the New Testament was taboo. And so I made sure to open it up closer to the beginning, lest my eyes glance upon the forbidden book. So, and, and I, I didn't read anything. So I was, I was fundamentally biblically illiterate. Um, later on, I was uh, uh, working at a Jewish day camp. And uh, we were going on some sort of uh, field trip somewhere, as we would do, about once a week, and we're on the bus getting ready to go. And I saw a very unusual phenomenon. One of my fellow staff was reading an Old Testament. I'd never seen anybody read an Old Testament. Uh, It would have been a Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures. I believe it was in English. Um, And this fellow counselor was had it with her and 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 she was reading it. by that time, I'd become a very arrogant teenager. And I really gave it to her, telling her like, how can anybody live by a book? Like, can't you think for yourself? I tell you that to tell you uh, what my relationship to the Bible was at at that point in my life. Well, I was still a teenager uh, the day in in september nineteen seventy six when I first heard anything uh, serious apart from seeing movies and such uh, uh, about Jesus, Yeshua. And um, and at that time, I was visiting a friend, and uh, there was a friend of a friend there. You could look up my, uh, my story. Um, I probably should put the link in again, as I often do, because I often refer to it. It's such a big, a big thing in my life. Um, and so um, anyway, I was this Friday afternoon at this friend's house, met this boyfriend of a of, of a friend for the first time, got to talking and he told me that he believed in what, he believed in the Bible and, and, he, and he believed that the Bible was the word of God, among other things. And I thought that was crazy because I didn't, how in the world, like this idea that God could write a book, uh, just a, completely dismissed it. Somewhat similar, but not as condescending, uh, couple of years prior with that fellow staff person from camp um anyway we we continued to talk and this was the first this explanation that he gave me was the my first step into beginning to respect that the bible was perhaps more than just a typical book uh made by human beings and he told me the story of the dead sea scrolls and i'll quickly repeat that here um so as it turned out Um, As it has turned out, uh, up until uh, the 1940s, the oldest Hebrew manuscript, so this we're talking about Old Testament now, the oldest manuscript of what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, was from 900 AD. Now, there's different theories about when the Bible was, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible was completed, uh, but it could be between 450 and 250 bc and so that means there's a large there was a large gap between whenever the originals were completed until the oldest copies that we had so when you had the oldest copy back in the 1940s the oldest copy if you can actually get hold of it in a museum or someplace would be from 900 AD. So that means there was this gap of, of at least 1,100 years, if not more, between the 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 most recent original to the copy. That's a long time, and, and for most of that history, of course. Uh, and, and Well, then, at 900, uh, 900 AD, the printing press hadn't been invented yet, so this was all done by hand. Copied copies and copies and copies and copies over all these centuries. Now it would be normal. Now I did, I wasn't interested in this kind of stuff back when I was almost nineteen. Um, I knew more about sitcoms and comic books and pop music. I wasn't really interested in anything that serious. Um, um, so anyway, this was all new to me. Um, and everything I've learned about it, I learned from st- from starting then. Uh, but check it out. Um, I'm, not, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, you may have heard me share that many years later, here in Ottawa, where we've been living for the past almost 20 years, um, I heard a lecture from the curator of the Shrine of the Book. That's the part of the Jerusalem Museum that cares for the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm going to explain a little more in a second. And he explained, the expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, explained... Uh, to the crowd there, including myself, the same details that this man, young man John, shared with me in 1976, and he was only 19, like I was. So anyway, so up until the 40s, there was this huge gap between the originals and the the oldest copies, uh, giving lots and lots of time for many many mistakes. One of the things that John said to me that I didn't know uh, was most ancient literature. Um, it the evidence for whatever the original said is really not all that good. There aren't a lot of copies. And there's confusion o- over what the original might have been. And that's one of the things we want to know. If the Bible is reliable, especially if we pick up an English Bible like this one, uh, how do I know that what's been translated into English represents what was originally given? How do we know that? And so, um, as it as it turned out, in 1947, uh, a Bedouin shepherd boy threw a rock into a, a cave and heard a clunk. And inside, let's see if we can grab it here. I have a, a replica. This is a miniature version of something that's way bigger. I got this at the Jerusalem um, uh, Museum uh, some years ago. And uh, so here, I'll, I'll even take off the elastic. Oops, it even broke. It must be an ancient rel- elastic, maybe an original. Anyway, so I don't know if you can see it here. So this is a replica of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can look it up online. There's actually a site, maybe I'll put that in the description too. There's a site called the Virtual Dead Sea Scrolls and you could look at them yourselves. And um, it's actually, I think it's upside down, uh, but uh, for lack, for the sake of time, let me just leave it. Um, anyway, what it was one of the greatest archeological discoveries ever Um, And it's a miracle on its own that it ended up getting into the right hands that the right scholars to examine what these were. And what they discovered were very, among other things, very old Hebrew scripture manuscripts. There is even a, a complete book of the prophet Isaiah that was there. And they ended up dating some of these biblical manuscripts back to the second century B.C. Now. Some of that might have been really close to when the f- the final versions of some of these books might have been cut, wrapped up. We might might say, um, but at the very least, we now have copies that are very close uh, to the originals. Unlike m- much in 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 ancient manuscripts, now we have something very very close. So when they compared the The Dead Sea Scrolls, the biblical portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls, to the copies from 900 AD, there's 1100 years gap, they almost exactly matched, like in the high 90%. So what John told me in in that day, over 40 years ago, was man can't do that. Human beings can't do that. It could have only been God. Now, that didn't convince me, but it it got my attention that there was something unusual about this book. But what is this book really about? Because we're, if we're going to talk about reliability, um, it's not just about how unusual it might be in terms of the, its history and even its accuracy, uh, because perhaps we all we have is... Uh, accurate retelling of certain folklore stories that may or may not be true Uh, we're claiming that uh, the bible itself claims for itself that it's the word of god inspired by god himself through human authors but inspired by god and so accuracy is just one piece of that but what is like what is the bible what what are we supposed to expect when we read the bible because when we talk about its reliability, we want to be careful that we're not talking about our understanding of it. I've alluded to this already. We're not talking about how people have taught the Bible. Not to say that how people have taught the Bible uh, misrepresent, necessarily misrepresents the Bible. But we're not talking about how people teach. We're talking about the Bible itself and is it trustworthy? Can we, can we trust it? So we're not talking about other people's understanding of it or how it's been taught. Um, we're also not talking about theology here which relates to how it's been taught and how it's been understood. In, in theology, people study Bible, hopefully it's mainly based on Bible, and then they draw conclusions from it and they categorize it. The technical term is they reduce it to to, to particular categories, like the love of God, the sinfulness of human beings, uh, what does it mean to be saved or rescued from... Um, from God's punishment and uh, does God punish and how does that work and and so the, the Bible refers to these topics but then if we what we what theology does is it takes the way the Bible talks about these things which is not in a categorical sort of way and then it categorizes it so we're not we're not talking about the theology that maybe you or I have learned we're talking about the Bible itself um so what should we expect from the Bible If we want to see if the Bible can prove itself to us, can the Bible show us that it's trustworthy, um, we need to know what to expect from it. Well, first of all, and similarly to that, we're not talking about theology here, it's not a textbook. It's not written like a textbook, though it is instructive. I've already mentioned it's not a theology book, but through it we learn about God and, and life and so on. It's not a book of morals. A lot of people treat it this way, as if it's simply stories of principles to learn, similar to Aesop's fables. And we look for, and so what is the moral of the story? Um, How does it teach about morality? Yes, there are morals to learn. There's morality to learn. But that's not really what the Bible is all about. It's not a history book, though it contains a great amount of historic uh, events but doesn't go out of its way to fill us in play by play on historical events it's it's geared to teach particular things within a historical context the, the history part is, is important because uh, it does make some historic claims though that's not its prime purpose uh, but it, it does help to see how it accurately Portrays historic events. It's also not a devotional book, uh, meaning it's not primarily a book that we read so that we uh, we feel warm fuzzies inside each day. Uh, we a lot of a lot of people like to read the Bible to to start off their day in a positive way, and sometimes we read it with these other helps that maybe quote a verse or a passage to give us a, something to think about that day. And that's fine. But the Bible itself isn't primarily a devotionally book, though it is inspiring and encouraging. It's also not a book of miracles. Like A lot of people relate to the Bible as if it's a collection of sensational stories. There are sensational stories in it. There is the miraculous. But you might be surprised that the miraculous is actually in the minority, that there are Parts of the Bible where we read a lot about what the Bible refers to as signs and wonders, more than miracles, we won't get into that right now. Uh, but these these unusual events uh, happen kind of in bunches, uh, but it's not full of that. It, so if, if you read the Bible through a little bit every day, um, you're not going to read about a miracle every day. It'll just be a miracle that you've read a chapter every day. Maybe not, but you know what I mean. And so, when we talk about the Bible's reliability, we must relate to what the Bible really is and what the Bible is for. So, first of all, what is the Bible? Well, it's a collection, the Bible is a collection of diverse writings written by about 40 different authors over a span of over 1600 years. It contains stories, songs, sayings, instructions to communities and specific individuals uh, from the from the person on the street to officials in royal courts, it takes place for the most part within a Jewish social and spiritual context, but designed to benefit all people. So that that's what we see what what the Bible really is. Um, but what is it for? What's the function of the, of of holy Scripture? That's best summed up in, in by Paul in Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen. Those who know me, these are a couple of my favorite verses. Paul writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, according to Paul, and I believe he sums up the Bible well, uh, the, the purpose of the Bible is to equip us for effective, godly living. So through it, we learn what God likes, what God doesn't like. We, we see God's perspective on things. But it's not just so that we can observe this and go, oh, isn't that interesting? We observe this in the scriptures so that we can then reflect who God is, what God wants, what he loves, what he hates, and he does hate things, um, and basically how he wants us to live. So that's how the Bible is to function in our lives. Um now I I've, I've already told you the story about how I fir- how the the Bible first got my t- attention uh, through this young man's explanation to me about the Dead Sea scrolls and, and that it was it was seemingly miraculously preserved over time then the next thing in that same conversation was when uh he shared with me the predictions or the prophecies in the Jewish Bible uh Prophecies about the Messiah, and this was all new to me, and I'm not going to take the time to to go into that, but I was so impressed uh, by seeing concepts and indications that appear to point to Yeshua, Jesus, and this was mind-blowing at the time, Um, and we're going to get more into Yeshua's place in all this, and how uh, it should help us um, see how trustworthy the Bible is. Um, also, I'm going to put in the description this something I found online some time ago, which is this very long list of both the predictions of and allusions to the Messiah in the Jewish Bible. And so I'll have that there for you. And then, and so from there, I was asked uh, to take a step in, in praying and in reckoning with the fact that I had failed in my life, that I was able to understand what it meant to be a sinner. Again, if you check out my story, you'll get the details on that. And I took a step. And as I took a step and another step, God became more real to me and the Bible became more compelling. Uh, We'll come back to that dynamic also in a little while. And so I want to share now some of the things that I have learned along the way that have been evidence to me that the Bible is is trustworthy, that I could rely on uh, what the Bible claims to be true. Well, first, as I've already alluded, we have the the predictive elements about the Messiah in the Jewish Bible, the the Old Testament, concerning the coming of the Messiah. And then, what's interesting is the as more you read the whole Bible. The New Testament is completely based upon the, the Jewish Bible, Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Um, and, and sadly, it's often not depicted that way. Often the New Testament is presented in contrast to the Old Testament as if it's not as good. And the you know, New Testament is sort of a new and improved Testament. Um, I recently did a podcast on what the New Testament is for and try to remember to put the link to that in the description as well. Uh, But the New Testament is completely based upon the old. And so you have this reliance of of the older writings upon the newer writings, the newer writings upon the older writings. And it's kind of interesting um, as as a Jewish person uh, to realize that one of the the greatest um, uh, elements, one of the great things that reasons for why uh, the believer in Yeshua should rely on the Old Testament and treat the Old Testament as reliable is because of Yeshua's own like stamp of authority, his guarantee, his reliance upon the Jewish Bible. He based his whole life on the revelation of God, the written revelation of God that came before him. Uh, there is no person in history like Yeshua the Messiah, who had put such a great stamp of approval upon the Jewish Bible. You know, the, the, the leadership of the Jewish world over time reckoned that there were these special books, there were many writings, not as many as we have today, but there are many writings in, in ancient times, but they recognized correctly, in my opinion, uh, that there was a collection of these books written over time by Moses and others that were unusual, that they were actually inspired by God. Well, this was Yeshua's view. He understood this, and he referenced almost all of of the New Testament books. And along with the other writers of the New Testament, almost every one of the books of the of the Jewish Bible is referenced or or quoted. And so they become so a, a um they become an authority uh, that in a sense that they're they're like the Bible experts of their day affirming the, the truth of the Hebrew Bible. While the Hebrew Bible anticipates the New Testament. I know among our our people that that sounds crazy, just like it did uh, to me, forty six years ago. Uh, but for the most part, uh, Jewish people have not had the opportunity to see how the Jewish Bible points to the New Testament and Yeshua in particular. And then if we could actually uh, rid the the unhealthy veil of Jewish negativity that's so common among uh, many Christians in the world has been for history and, and and negative ways Jewish people are seen using passages in the New Testament. I don't have time to get into that. That would be a good topic to talk about down, down the road. But um, because Christians have often used the New Testament to harshly criticize Jewish people, Jewish things, and the Old Testament, often uh, Christians and Jews can't see how uh, integrated the New Testament really is with the the Jewish Bible. Another thing that's so helpful, in in an ironic sort of way, and in a troubling sort of way, is by and large, the Jewish leadership of Yeshua's day, and since, not exclusively, but majority, um, has rejected Yeshua as the Jewish Messiah, but when you actually look at the Bible on um, on its own, it is astounding how it po- how it points to Yeshua. And so, the the earliest uh, power brokers of the day rejected this message, and yet it's the message that it contains. And so. I find that that, uh, very helpful. So along with that, and and it's similar to this, but the concern of the early uh, Jewish religious leadership, um, how they had, and you know, it even makes sense. It makes sense that the power brokers of that day would be in the forefront of trying to push back against these truths, even when they were anticip- anticipated in their own holy writings. So if you understand the world in which we live, the fact that the Jewish leadership, by and large, rejected Yeshua's messianic claim, that actually makes sense. It's not the sort of thing that you would write, and that's and we'll get that more in, in, in a bit. So, but it's all to say the Bible stands up to scrutiny uh, Back over 100 years ago, it became very popular uh, for scholars to basically tear the Bible to shreds and make it sound like so much of the Bible must have been made up, that this couldn't have happened, and that couldn't have happened. Um, and much of that concern was pre the the uh, advent of archaeology. But since the archaeological movement began, the more arch- the more archaeology goes after Bible truth, the more it confirms instead of contradicts. Uh, one of my favorites is, you may not know, but for many years, uh, it was believed that King David was a fabrication, that he was a mythic hero of the Jewish people, that because there was no other evidence outside the Bible that he existed. Um, and I'll put in this link um, from the uh, Bible Archaeological Re- archaeology report um that uh, uh that refers to the discovery of references to king david and and so often what's happened is historians archaeologists will assume just because they haven't found a reference to something that the bible speaks of is they say the bible's basically making it up um and so you know i i've come to the point where whether they find pieces of noah's ark on mount ararat or not to me doesn't make a a, a difference it because the bible has proven itself reliable to me sure it would be exciting if we find some of these things and maybe they have found things i know people have claimed this sort of thing i i don't get really worked up about that sort of thing because over time i didn't need i didn't need the reference to king david um, i'm glad i heard the story of the dead sea scrolls and in my situation that was very helpful but once i came to know that the bible was trustworthy uh, this collection of writings references king david that's good enough for me um, that evidence appeared eventually great um and i've i've come to, i've i've become convinced that the more they go after archaeological evidence and and at historical evidence, eventually they're going to find that the bible has been true all along so it stands up to scrutiny um somebody more knowledgeable knowledgeable than me and somebody who can talk better than i do could uh give you more information. There's books about this sort of thing, but I just wanted to give you some tastes about why I believe that the Bible is reliable, why I believe it's trustworthy. Another another thing about the Bible is that it's reflective of real life. I mentioned that already with uh, the majority of religious leadership rejecting his messianic claims. You know, the assumption that they would be so happy that the king has arrived, Mm, not so much. Um, I don't have time to get into all sorts of stories uh, in the Bible, but you know, I remember I had an opportunity once to to in an adult teaching course I was teaching. I was taking. sometimes I try to go too fast. So let's try that again. So I was taking an adult education course um, and this is a course where you learn to teach adults, which I guess I'm trying to do right now. And we had an opportunity to do these short little teaching se- sessions. And I, I did a bit, and these were people, they, I don't know if they knew anything about the Bible, but I was trying to show how relevant the Bible was to contemporary life. And so one of the stories that I, I shared was about Adam and Eve. Now a lot of people go, Adam and Eve, you know, the contemporary modern person, that doesn't believe that there was these two individual people, a man and a woman that God directly created in, in his image and and. We can all, uh, all our genealogies go back to those two people. How You can't talk about that, but I didn't focus on that. What I focused on was when, after they had eaten the fruit that they shouldn't have, and they went hiding from God, which itself is pretty wild, that anyone, like, how would, why would somebody make that up? But here they are hiding from God, and God appears, and questions, you know, the question, where are you? And Adam says, um, uh, um i was afraid i heard you coming i was af- and um and so i hid and god said did you eat the fruit i didn't eat and his response was the woman that you gave me gave it to me and i ate so in adam's first confrontation with god almighty his response is to pass the buck blaming his wife actually blaming god it's such a deep story actually so blame blame shifting as we've learned to call it passing the buck has been around according to the bible for a very long time that's true to life then they according to the bible their first two kids were these two boys cain and abel and next thing you know there's sibling rivalry no duh and god shows approval for one uh, to abel's sacrifice cain is all jealous and and actually ends up murdering his brother maybe not in your family maybe you can't relate to this but this is very common, folks. That the people that we're the closest to are the ones that we end up having the most animosity with. And the Bible is dealing with this sort of thing in its in chapter four of the whole collection uh, of of all these books. And so we can go on and on. Um, you, it's know, the story of 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 David and Jonathan and Saul. Just the whole thing with Saul and David is just phenomenal. I don't know how would anybody ever make this. Thing up where he gets Saul's the first king of Israel David is then because Saul really messes up unbeknownst to anybody but a few people David uh, is anointed by God to be the next king ends up working for the king that's amazing there too and all these things happen David's doing really well Saul becomes jealous of him but who's David's best friend Saul's son Jonathan and they become best buds even though Jonathan would normally be next in line for the for the the kingship, he becomes best buddies with with David, and then both Saul and Jonathan get bumped off in a war. Maybe you don't like me using that expression. They get become killed in a war, and, and Jonathan's gone. And and anyway, these are the tragedies, the 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 connections, the real kind of relationships that are all part of real life, and and the and the Bible so well reflects life as it really is if if we're honest very often we like stories that romanticize life or they're just they're so terrible They're so terrible that when you finish the book or the movie, your life seems a lot better. But um, we like exaggerated accounts of life. We like romanticized and neat and tidy stories of of life. Um, But life is not like that. Life is messy. And the stories in the Bible are messy. And, And sometimes they can be really uncomfortable because they reflect life as it really is. At the same time also... It's quite something the way the Bible is self- defacing, especially with regard to the main characters. So unlike uh, other characters in in folklore, whether it's ancient or modern, there's this there's this self-defacing umness to them. Now, seeing how I brought up modern, um one of the things i I like to talk about is is how the Bible relates to the superhero myth that's become so rejuvenated in our in our day um and one of the things that we see and we see it more i'm to be fair i'm not familiar with the more recent dc superheroes like superman and batman i'm a child of the original of the original tv batman of the 1960s which was a spoof but leaving that alone um i've really liked the the marvel movies for the most part That's not my carte blanche um, um, Whatever it's called, um, I'm I'm not saying they're all great and they're all good. Let, let's try to stay, Gilman, stay on on topic here. Uh, so one of the things about Marvel comics, going back to when I was a, a kid and I used to read uh, comic books, is they tended to be more human. But there's still something uh, uh, about how marvel does it even people who don't possess personal superpowers can get thrown across a room and they just kind of shake it up and they get back into the fight sort of thing not normal Um, they don't they do go through these emotional um, uh, issues with relationships and this sort of thing which is very compelling as as a viewer or a or a reader but one of the things about these superheroes, besides the, well, the main thing, and I, and I alluded to it just a second ago, the way somebody can get thrown across a room and then just wake up, shake it off, wake up, get up, and shake it off, is um, that's just not normal. They don't really act like normal people. And of course, many of them are not normal people. You know, Thor, Captain America, th- these are what we call, and what the, the the movies call, enhanced individuals. Well, there are no enhanced individuals. We're all the same. And the key people in the Bible are not enhanced. Now, you might say Yeshua is enhanced as the Son of God. But the Son of God emptied himself of his enhancement. Read Philippians 2. And he became just like one of us. And so the Bible characters are not heroes in the classical sense. But there are these main characters. Uh, another, Another way that a lot of folklore is different from... The, the, the biblical depiction of its main characters is uh the biblical understanding of right and wrong is always very clear so when when the main characters in scripture fail it's generally clear to the to the reader that this is a moral failure you can feel it when when Abraham uh, lies about Sarah being her sister what the reader should feel uncomfortable uh, when Moses kills the Egyptian you should feel uncomfortable um, and 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 when David commits murder and adultery we know this is not right and it, it it says so very clearly in Scripture and so the Bible is very critical of its own key characters. Um, and shows them for who they really are, and and so and 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 that also should be compelling. The, that there's this honesty about Scripture that we don't encounter in other writings, and so because of its deep honesty about itself, that gives us reason to trust it. Um, along with that, there are elements of Scripture that basically you just can't make this stuff up. Uh, the way it tells its stories, the things that happen. Again, I don't have time to to go into all this in detail. Now, of course, there's Yeshua's resurrection. Now, I, if you really want to get into this deep, I highly recommend NT Wright's uh, uh, "The Resurrection of the Son of God." It's a we call it a tome. It's really it's really big. Um, he has a popular version of that book called "Surprised by Hope," but he doesn't get into. Uh, this that, that I'm going to say he painstakingly goes through what various peoples of that day in the, what we now call the first century what they believed about life after death resurrection and he he proves as far as I can I I think he proves that this idea that the messiah would come as an individual and singularly rise from the dead and do what only some Jewish people believed that one day would happen to everyone, some to life and some to death. They believed when the Messiah would come that it would bring about the resurrection of the dead. No one believed in Yeshua's day, no one believed that the Messiah would do this by himself as a sort of first fruits, to what was going to happen sometime in the future, we see in the Gospels when he talked about it to his disciples, they didn't understand what he was saying, and they really believed that when he died, that he was he was dead, dead, and that the, the his mission was a failure, and they were hiding for their lives, and so the um that then the New Testament exhibits this truth and talks about how his followers came to believe it, how they would go out and even risk their lives for this story. It's just, this is not something that anyone would make up. There's no reason to make it up. Now, we can go through other stories, too, and, and, and examine them. Like, is are these even some of the fantastic stories... Um, are do they appear to be contrived or is there something about it that seems back to this honesty that i talked about earlier there's something very honest about how the bible portrays itself i'm just going to mention one um i teach um uh bible to grades five through eight in a small private school here in ottawa i mentioned this to to one of the classes the the uh the younger class that i teach um because we're going through the book of acts and um very interesting. So in Acts chapter 5, there's a reference to this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who um, pretended to give, they sold their property, and they were doing what a lot of the people of the early believers are doing, selling property, and then bringing the funds to the community leadership, who would then give it out to, to the poor among them. Um, and Ananias and Sapphira decided they that they uh, would pretend that they were doing this and so they sold property they kept some of it for themselves and they gave the other but gave the impression that they were giving everything and god judged them for that he actually struck both of them dead it's a terrible story uh but that's what happened and the husband was ananias that's in chapter five in chapter nine of course in the original there's no chapter numbers but so sometime later in the story we now have shaul Saul um who was very zealous for what was right maybe you know people like this and believe that somebody had to stop the preaching of this message about this supposed messiah and uh he's on his way to uh to Damascus in modern Syria and um and he's 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 been authorized to arrest these Jewish believers for what he thought was this horrible idea of believing in Yeshua. And on the way, he is met by this revelation of the now risen Yeshua. And he goes through, he blinds him, speaks to him, he has to be led into the city, and this convinces him that it's true. Um, And so while he's blind in Damascus, uh, the Lord speaks to a man and, and tells him to go to Paul. I'm uh, sorry, um, and his name was Paul. I'll throw this in. It's an extra. Uh, so Shaul, Saul, his name was also Paul. His name was never changed to Paul. He began to use the name Paulos because he was relating to non-Jewish people in his preaching to non-Jews. Uh, but it says in in, in Acts that is, um, I believe it's Acts 14, that uh, Saul, who was also called Paul. He had both names, um, just like I was given the name Avram, uh, named after my my paternal grandfather, but also given the name Alan. Anyway, that was free. Let's get back. So here is Shaul, Saul, blinded, and God goes to this man to tell him, a believer, to go and heal Saul of his blindness, and, and speak to him what God was telling this man. And what's this man's name? It's Ananias. It's another Ananias. So there's the, the struck down dead Ananias and the go talk to Saul Ananias. Two different Ananiases. Now, if you made this up, would you give the same name to these two gentlemen? Like, why would you do that? And of course, this doesn't by itself prove that these stories are exactly as the Bible says they happen. But the Bible is full of that sort of thing where... The only reason to tell the story in the way that it does is that it really happened the way it says it happened. Then we have the supposed contradictions, and there's—that's a whole topic. I'm just going to touch on this, but I believe the supposed contradictions. I know some people say there aren't any; there just aren't any. But but there's there's some difficult ones, and I'm going to talk about one. Um, But. I believe the supposed contradictions actually um, are further proof that the Bible is trustworthy rather than unreliable. And so we see one uh, in Acts chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Um, and this is a Stephen's speech to the Jewish leadership. Um, they had taken him aside, and they thought that he was saying certain things that he really wasn't saying. They were taking some of this things out of context. People do that, don't they? They did that, and political leadership um, uh, that feel threatened will often try to scapegoat a certain person and twist their words. This is this is real life, folks. That's what we find in the Bible. And so here's Stephen, and he gets an opportunity to defend himself. And so he gives this speech in Acts chapter 7, and um, the the writer— Who's Luke? The same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke, as far as we know. um, In his writing, he's quoting Stephen as saying that Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Joseph was buried. A long time ago, Joseph was buried in the plot of land that Abraham bought from the sons of Hamor in the town of Shechem. But according to Joshua 24:32, it was Jacob who bought that land where Joseph was buried. Now. It does look that that what we have in Acts 7 referencing Abraham as buying this plot of ground in Shechem that that is incorrect that the correct version of the story is what's found in Joshua and it was Jacob who actually bought the land so then what's going on here my main thing here is that if this was contrived This was contrived that if the book of Acts was made up way later to try to somehow create a history for some crazy cults of saying that this dead uh, rabbi possible miracle worker was actually the son of God and Messiah, and they made all these stories up, wouldn't they be a little more careful in getting it correct? Uh and if other people like the leadership of this movement, once they would see that somehow, some way it was gotten wrong, wouldn't they have fixed it? But they didn't. So now we have we'll still call it a seemingly a seemingly uh, contradiction. Maybe there is some other way to explain this. I didn't take lots of time to look on this online, I'm sure, because there are some people that are so um, um, concerned that there are no discrepancies like this in Scripture at all that there, will, the conclusion will always be some sort of way to say that both ways of telling the story must be true. Well, one of the ways that it might be true is it's possible that Stephen, in the moment... With all the pressure that he was facing, he actually ended up getting stoned to death. So it was a it was a terrible situation that was he was in. He was just a guy that because of some things that he did ended up with some 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 prominence, and they noticed him. They called him out, but he was just a guy, and now he's facing uh, uh, the the leadership of his people, and his life is on the line. Is it? conceivable? Is it possible that in the moment he meant to say Jacob and he said Abraham? That's possible. Like, How are we supposed to understand what it means that the Bible's inspired, that the Bible is true, that the Bible is authoritative? Does it, does it mean that it's going to be a certain kind of perfect that we expect, or a type of reflection of an honesty of truth that kind of has some of these frayed edges, that, that it has some of these things that make us go like, what's really going on here? But, the, but let's say, let's say that what we have, it could be that Luke was so concerned to get it right, that he was providing us with exactly what Stephen said in the moment. And just like you and I might flub under pressure, it's possible that Stephen flubbed. Oh, wait a second, how could it be that Stephen flubbed? Well, who says that these Bible characters are supposed to get it all right all the time? As a whole, the Bible reflects God's truth. But that doesn't mean... I should look this up. But Yeshua says that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. What do you do with the Oh, He's supposed to know everything. Remember, I talk, Philippians two makes it clear that he emptied himself. He seemed to be talking about how they understood at the time. It would have been so ridiculous if he would have referred to some seed these people had never heard of and used some Latin word to describe it because he knows everything. And yo, know, but he says it's the smallest seed. So some people say because Yeshua the Messiah said the mustard seed is the smallest seed, then it must be the smallest seed. Are you really reading Bible? In its context, he was making a point. He wasn't talking about botany. He was ta- he was making a point that it's all you need is a little bit of faith and you can move mountains. That's the most important thing. We get so hung up about certain things, but at the same time, it's this kind of way of, of if, if the writers of the New Testament were so concerned to trick us, then it wouldn't be written in this way. It's similar to the differences in the Gospels. Uh, It's so actually refreshing the way, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also with John, we we see some similar stories, and they're told in different ways, and some of the details are different, and some of the timeline is different. Well, that's how stories are told. There's people that are much better at addressing this than I am. But again, through these differences, there's so much to learn. Um, And what we're seeing is that these writers are giving us what— What they've encountered, they're sharing their hearts with us. They're 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 not just giving us what. Suppose they're not claiming that God dictated these things from heaven. Um, So little of the Bible is like that. Uh, We do have God writing the Ten Commandments. We do have God saying to prophets, "Thus says the Lord." We have God speaking directly to Moses. Uh, But so much of Scripture is is how the writers have reflected reality, truth, from God's perspective, and they've been moved along by God's Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in doing so. But they're still human, and they don't go out of their way to snuff out their humanness to kind of prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that you better believe that this is true or else. And this brings us to something about the Scripture that I find so very compelling. And it's something that was said in a second-year Hebrew class, Regent College, many years ago in the 80s. And uh, my professor was Dr. Bruce Waltke, uh, has been one of the foremost biblical Hebrew scholars. And um, it, was de- it was such a delightful class. It was a seminar uh, format, and we'd sit in a semicircle, and we would share what we'd studied. And every now and then, uh, Dr. Waltke would kind of share from his own knowledge. One of the things that he said once once was the Bible is a sensitive book. He'd often do it with his eyes closed. The Bible is a sensitive book, a sensitive book for the sensitive reader. It's not as if the Bible presents itself with strong, high walls and, and barbed wire to protect itself from abuse. It's the opposite. It presents itself in such a way that it's actually easy to attack and people have been attacking it since the beginning. It allows itself to do that and it's important that it does that because it it actually provides us with with the realities of life, God's goodness, God's truth, um, God's insight in order to connect with these precious, precious truths, it can't protect itself from harm. It's similar to the Messiah himself who didn't come in such a way to prove himself to people. And even those things that should have been proof weren't good enough for the people whose hearts were closed and they didn't want a Messiah. They didn't really want a Messiah to come and lead them. They wanted the Messiah to come and do their bidding. And that's often what we want, isn't it? We want God to be the way we want Him to be. We want His Word to behave itself. We don't want to be in a posture where we're in the presence of God through His written Word where it's kind of messy like us and it's sensitive like we should be. And if we would be sensitive to it and allow it to speak on its own terms, we can be so enriched but we have to let our walls down, not not to be mindless. No, to engage it. In Book of Proverbs, we're encouraged to dig for wisdom like hidden treasure. It could be hard work, you know. You know some of the the the, the one of the beautiful stories, a couple of beautiful stories of people who reckoned with truth in their day. They they are Bible examples of how we can encounter truth. First, is Jacob. Jacob, when he went on his way, he's one of the great patriarchs, one of the great heroes, quote-unquote, of holy scripture. But when he went off running away from his uh, brother's murderous threats, he didn't even believe in God. He ends up getting the promises of God, where God passes on his promise that had first been given to Abraham, then to his dad, Isaac. Now they're given to him. And Jacob's response of, if you bring me back here, then you will be my God. He didn't even believe in God, and he goes off and he does his own thing in his own way, and he's coming back, and now he's freaked out because his brother he coming with this army, and he counters God, and what happens? He wrestles with God, he wrestles with him, and he holds on to him for dear life, and he, and 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 God says, Um, "Let me go," and he says, like, "I won't let you go." Like who would make this up? He's encountering God, and and he won't let go until you bless me, and then God ends up injuring him and changes his name and changes him. You can't make this stuff up. That the Bible's encouraging us to hold on to God even if it kills us and in there is blessing. That's a sensitive book for sensitive readers, a sensitive God for sensitive followers. Look at Job. Job's another one where he's suffering and he doesn't understand why his best buds are there spouting theology, telling him that you must have done something horrible to deserve this. And he's going, no, I haven't. And he was right. And he's never told that he was right. Never. And yet he's grappling with reality and truth in the midst of a, a... misunderstood suffering just like you and me and in the end god commends him for speaking right not like his friends even though job had really given it to god and said you are being unjust and all the rest and yet god affirms job's going after god not with a he probably was with a fist Moses, after when God says, I'm going to destroy the people because of their horrible sin that they did, that God had given the Torah with the Ten Commandments, and yet they were parting it up with, with sexual exploits in the golden calf, and God wanted to destroy them. And what does Moses say? No, don't destroy them. God said, I was going to make I'll make a new nation out of you. No, don't do it. And what's that? That's That's a reflection of of true godliness that Moses learned after decades wandering himself in the wilderness after blowing it himself and he didn't want to even do the job God gave him to do. He said no to God and, and God prevailed upon him and he became one of the greatest leaders of all time and in the end he ends up having an anger problem and I can go on and on. The reality of this book that sometimes can drive us crazy if we read it at face value and read it on its own terms. If we allow ourselves to grapple with it like Jacob was wrestling with God, we discover how trustworthy it really is. And finally, one of the greatest things about the Bible and one of its greatest proofs, but not on its own, not on its own, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have archeological evidence. We have some of the its inner cohesion that is remarkable given 40 authors over 1,600 years. There's the, you li- seek to live by it and it can prove your, uh, itself to you. But most of all, the, the primary writer of this phenomenal collection of writings is alive and we could talk to the author if we have concerns about the scripture and i i had um i wanted to talk about some of the difficult things in the bible don't have time um i do want to wrap this up write to me if there's particular issues that you have with scripture if there are any questions that you've been concerned about ask me your hardest bible questions if i don't know the answer i'll do my best in trying to find an answer to it and if i don't know the answer i'll be honest with you because I, i i believe that's allowed We don't have to be like experts in the worldly sense with regard to this book. There's so there's there's so much that we can comprehend if we are if we are open to it. But the the reason why we can encounter this this collection of writings in the way that we can is because the author is alive. And we could talk to him and we can go to him with our concerns, with our questions, with our difficulty about it, and ask him to make clear what is unclear to us he doesn't want to leave us in the dark he wants to shine his light upon us and his word can be that light if we open ourselves to him and let and let him teach us his inspired word so as i said please don't hesitate send me your questions send me your concerns if, if send me your anger just be nice about it, and I'll do my best in in trying to give you a a good answer. Maybe we could start a conversation in trying to uh, grapple with some of the more difficult things in in the Bible. So please email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. If this is helpful to you, give it the thumbs up put in re- review, share with other people, tell people what you think about this. I'd love to get this message out to many more people. And I need your help to do that. Um, I do post this on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And so if you haven't seen it there, uh, but, um, you are on any of those platforms, you can look for it there and you can, you could share from there. Also, these, uh, podcasts are available in audio as well. at some of the major podcast, uh, providers. If yours isn't one of them, let me know. I'll make sure that it gets added. Um, More of this information is available if you go to thinkingbiblically.org. You'll you'll see both the video uh, archives of the podcast as well as access to the audio versions. Um, so again, you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Let me know if there's topics that you'd like me to cover or try to cover. If there's guests that you would like me to have on, let me know that as well. Be very happy to be in contact with you. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.